Well, this morning, we are going to open a very special letter from Paul to a congregation that he dearly loved, a congregation he called My Joy and Crown, the church at Philippi. It's a church that Paul founded some ten years before the letter was written, having gone there after seeing a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Paul went, and in going, he was the first to take the gospel from Asia into Europe. And we read of that account in the 16th chapter of Acts, where we also get a glimpse of his first three conversions. Interesting, interesting variety of people. We find first Lydia, a seller of purple a wealthy businesswoman. We find a demon-possessed girl who was being used by unscrupulous men for fortune-telling. And we find a jailer who had been charged with keeping Paul and Silas under guard. They all came to Christ and helped form the church in Philippi. So the church was obviously a very diverse church, made up of all kinds of people and it did have its share of petty conflicts and differences of opinion, but it was a church that was united in its love for Christ and its love for Paul, and a church to which he felt very special ties. The letter is being carried to the church by Epaphroditus, who had been sent from Philippi to Rome with a financial gift for Paul. He had apparently planned to stay there for some time, ministering to Paul, who was a prisoner in Rome at the time. But Epaphroditus had grown seriously ill, even at the point of death, Paul tells us. Once he recovered, Paul decided to send him back home. And to explain why he was coming back so soon, and to express gratitude to the people at Philippi, Paul wrote this letter. Now, there's no real theological treatise here or an organized sermon on a particular topic. It's just a friendly letter expressing how Paul felt. But that in itself is quite a message. Paul was a prisoner awaiting Nero's verdict. He'd apparently already been tried, and it was now up to Nero whether he lived or died. But in spite of that, this letter resounds with confidence and triumph, with joy and hope, with positive statements about the goodness of God and how we are to live victoriously in Christ. Paul's confident the Philippians are praying for him. But he doesn't ask them to pray for his release, for his deliverance. It really doesn't matter to him whether he lives or dies, he says. He just wants to be found faithful and knows that if they pray for him, he'll have the strength to do what God wants him to do. Now, if I had to put the theme of this letter into two sentences, they would be, I am rejoicing 
in my circumstances are you. I am rejoicing in my circumstances are you. Now, even in prison, Paul could write about the joy of the Lord. In fact, he mentions joy or rejoicing 17 times in this little letter. How can he talk like that? Quite simply, Paul was able to rejoice because he had the fundamental assurances that we all need in life. He didn't struggle with the things that robbed so many of joy. He had the keys that unlock real joy in spite of hardships and circumstances. He knew who he was. He didn't wrestle with an identity crisis and wonder who he was and where he was going. He didn't have that frustration. And he knew where he was. He was secure in his position in life. He didn't have to stress over where he was or what he was to be doing or where he was to be going. He knew where he was in life. And he knew what had been given to him, what he'd received. He didn't have to compare what he had been given in life with what others had been given and wonder if he'd been given uh, the short stick. He knew what he had. And he rejoiced in it. Well, those understandings, I think, are basic to true happiness. And in the first two verses of Paul's letter of joy, we can find them all if we look for them. We read together, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In that brief introduction, Paul lets us know who we are, where we live, and what we've been given. Let's see if that understanding can't bring us to real joy as well. He begins, who I am. Who am I? Well, Paul and Timothy saw themselves as slaves. He begins his letter, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, we expect them to be servants of the Lord, but they didn't see themselves as mere servants of God. They saw themselves as bondservants, as slaves. Not someone who just worked for another, but someone who was owned by another. They were slaves. And a slave is someone with a master. And they recognized Jesus as their master. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying the same thing. Jesus is master. And the master has complete control. Paul knew that. His master had complete control over his life and over Timothy's life. What he said, they did. No questions asked. No deciding whether they wanted to do something or not. They were slaves to a master. They were Christ's slaves. And they weren't ashamed of being slaves. In fact, being his slaves brought them 
great joy. Now, we might wonder how slavery can bring anyone joy. You know, what we seek is freedom, independence, liberation. Paul had found joy through utter dependence on a master who loved him. He had given himself so completely to Jesus Christ that he didn't have to wonder who he was or what he was to do. He belonged to someone, someone who loved him enough to die for him. He didn't have to go through life wondering if he really mattered to anyone, if anyone valued him as a person. The one who had created him had made up for his shortcomings and sins, had paid a great price for him, so he knew who he was. He was the slave of Jesus Christ. And he knew who the Philippians were. They were saints. Now, a saint is someone who has been set apart, someone who has been made holy. Not someone who has worked for years buffeting the body and denying self until he becomes holy, but someone who has been made holy, who has been willingly set apart for service to God. And once a person becomes a saint, once he has been made holy, he will deny himself to serve his master. But his holiness doesn't come from what he does. It comes from what someone did for him. Overseers and deacons and all other parts of the body of Christ have been set apart for service in the kingdom of God. And that is what makes them saints. They've been made clean. They've been made pure in the sight of God. And they have been set apart for a holy purpose, a life of serving their master. Now, that doesn't mean we should join a monastery and do nothing but pray and read the Bible all day. That we should become religious in the eyes of the world. You know, a holy life is simply a life that reflects godliness and righteousness, a life that reflects the character of God and demonstrates righteousness by right living. The way we work for our employers or handle business demonstrates our holiness. The kind of parent or spouse we are is an expression of our holiness. The way we control ourselves in a crisis or a sporting event reveals our righteousness. All that we do should express the fact that we have been made pure and clean and have been set apart for righteous living, right living, Christ-like living. That's who we are. A Christian is both a slave and a saint. If you understand that and accept it, you'll know who you are and what you're to do. You'll have found the first key to contentment and real joy. Next, you need to know where you live. Now, unless we're homeless, we have a geographical address. The recipients of this letter were at Philippi. 
a Roman colony populated primarily by the military. It was a town located on a major thoroughfare, an affluent town with silver and gold mines nearby. It was a rough-and-tumble town. And like the Philippian saints, we too find ourselves in a rough-and-tumble world. We live in a society marked by violence and wickedness. There's no need to catalog the sins of society for you. We see them, we hear of them, we read of them, we're bombarded by them on the media every day. But one might ask, how can a saint be happy living in a place like this? Or, what's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this? Or, why doesn't God do something and give his saints a more desirable environment? in which to live. How can a saint be happy in a place like this? The same way Paul could be happy in prison. You know, he may have been forced to reside in prison, but he lived in Christ. And so did the Philippians. That's why this letter is addressed to the saints In Christ Jesus, who were in Philippi, in Christ, was their spiritual address. And other than the temporary pleasures we may enjoy, it really doesn't matter where we live on earth so long as our spiritual address is in Christ. In John 17, 15, Jesus prayed, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Christ has us living here in an evil world for a purpose. We are here to share his love and to give others the opportunity to also find an abundant life as well as eternal life in him. You know, glance at this letter of joy and you can't miss it. Time and time again, Paul uses the phrase in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in him. He's trying to make a point. Christians abide in Christ Jesus and our abiding in him affords us the luxury of salvation, security, and contentment. Those things are ours no matter our physical address if we are in Christ. We know our Lord will see to it that our fundamental needs are met here and in the hereafter. So we're secure and happy living anywhere. It sounds a little strange for us to be saying that here in Chatham when so many people live in shacks who have been blown away. Those who live in Christ, those who live in Christ can still find joy when their home is blown away. That's hard for me to comprehend. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. If we want joy, we realize we live in Christ. The other things don't matter. 
finally we have joy because we know what we've been given. Paul greeted the Christians with grace and peace. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Sunday school, you probably learned that grace is defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a great definition. Great definition. God's riches at Christ's expense. We did nothing to earn it or deserve it, but because of it, we will be able to share God's riches for all eternity. How can we feel we've been given a rotten deal in life if all that God has has been given to us, fully paid for, if we will but accept it? His grace, His riches have been given to us. And with that grace comes peace. Now, the word used for peace doesn't mean the absence of trouble. It means total well-being. Paul had his troubles. He had been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and imprisoned. But he still had peace. He still had a sense of well-being. He knew he belonged to Christ. He knew that Christ would take care of him no matter what happened. And he was at peace because of it. If we have the peace that comes from God's grace, the troubles of life can never throw us into a bottomless sea of despair. The peace that passes understanding gives us confidence for every one of life's emergencies. Our sense of peace comes from knowing who we are, where we live, what we've been given. It's a peace that comes from knowing Christ died for us and having the assurance that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. That's what gave Paul joy. And that can give us joy as well. You know, this letter tells us in the first two verses who we are, where we live, and what we have. And there are 102 verses to go. I'm really looking forward to exploring all of this letter from a friend, this letter of joy with you. It's a neat letter. If you didn't read it through this week, I encourage you, just sit down and read it. It doesn't take but ten minutes to read it. Get a feel for it. Just let the joy permeate out of this letter from a prison to you and your circumstances. It's a letter of joy. It's a letter of joy. And I trust that, that we can get excited together as we're receiving this message. And as excited as the Christians in Philippi were when Epaphroditus first unrolled the scroll and started reading it to them, it brought them joy. And that joy can be ours.
if we'll let Jesus mend our heart. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. And that's the bottom line to joy. Because in Him, you know who you are. In Him, you know where you abide. And in Him, you find grace and peace. Let Jesus come into your heart. Let's stand together.